It's been a week of high-stakes negotiations and some long days on Capitol Hill as politicians figure out the federal budget. This was the Schumer uh, shutdown. How can it be the Schumer shutdown when Republicans control the White House, uh, the House, and the Senate? Come on, you know the answer to that as well as anybody. This vote should be a no-brainer. And it would be, except the Democratic leader has convinced his members to filibuster any funding bill that doesn't include legislation they are demanding for people who came into the United States illegally. We discussed all of the major outstanding issues. We made some progress, but we still have a good number of disagreements. The discussions will continue. I'm Amy Scott, in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And it doesn't get more real than concerns over the loss of income or services. So that's where we'll start, with what happens to workers when the federal government shuts down, people who rely on the government for a paycheck. One group of workers is caught in a gray area. They're federal contractors, people who aren't full-fledged federal employees but work alongside them. We called up one of those contractors. Jessica Cohen is a contractor who provides support for the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I should note we are talking on Friday. It's late afternoon on the East Coast, and we're still waiting to see if the government will shut down. How are you feeling? Um, I'm definitely anxious uh, being a contractor I won't get a paycheck because, at least for our contract, we can only bill for hours worked. So if the government shuts down, all of our work will have to stop, which means we don't have the opportunity to get retroactive pay. So unlike federal employees, uh, they might get furloughed and, and get paid later, but you would just miss out on that pay entirely? Correct. That just disappears for us. Are most of the coworkers in your office on contract? Um, I'd say right now it's split because we are still under a hiring freeze. So we haven't been able to replace the employees that have left us over the last year. What's the mood been like at work with this looming? Uh, I don't think people are talking about it much. There doesn't seem to be a ton of alarm because we've had so many continuing resolutions. I think everyone thinks it just will pass through again, but, um, this one's kind of scaring you. Yeah, how would it affect you personally? I mean, I suppose it, it depends how long it lasts, but do you have savings to, to get through? Yeah, I mean, I personally have savings for things such as this, but um, I don't know. My son is on CHIP, and that's the only support I get from the government. So it's like I still have rent and student loans and car payments and bills, so... It can't last forever. I think we hear your son in the background. He's uh, about one year old, is that right? Yes, that is him. So you're talking about CHIP, the federal health insurance program for children whose parents uh, don't qualify for Medicaid but still need some assistance. And that program, of course, has been in the balance uh, with uh, this these budget negotiations. How have you been planning for... Uh, what to do if Chip lapses? Well, we keep up to date with his doctor's appointments, and we're just trying to keep in communication. Um, we have plans for what if, but they're obviously not plans that 
I would like to resort to other than Chip. But we are one of the lucky ones that he doesn't have health problems that I know that will affect many other kids that are on Chip. I just want to end with uh, one question for you is just all this uncertainty must be difficult in terms of planning for the near future. Yeah, very much so. I'm not, I'll be nervous to check my phone and see what's happening. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. That was Jessica Cohen, a federal contractor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The last government shutdown five years ago cost the U.S. economy an estimated $20 billion, according to Moody's Analytics. So you'd think the markets would be a bit on edge right about now. Or maybe not. Marketplace's Sabri Benishur joins me from our studios in New York. Hi, Sabri. Hi, Amy. So what impact do you suppose this could have on the markets? Not a big one. Um, I didn't come across anyone who thought this would have a serious impact. Uh, One of the people I call up when I have questions about this is Marilyn Cohen. She's president of Envision Capital. She manages bond investments. There'll be a lot of rhetoric, and it'll be amped up over the weekend. But everybody just needs to stay calm because it's going to be a non-event. So nothing to see here, folks. Move on along. I guess I find that a little bit surprising. Why do you think investors don't care if the government shuts down? It is a little surprising at first. It really is. But, you know, when you think about it, equity markets, for example, they're in a very good place right now. There's strong growth. They've seen, they're seeing strong earnings. There's big corporate tax cut. These are reality-based numbers, not headlines. And markets, given that, are not really into feeling a buzzkill right now. Uh, bond markets, you know, they're focused on expected growth, government borrowing, some inflation down the road. Not anything to do with the government shutting down. This is one reason why Marilyn Cohen is saying this whole thing is a big nothing burger for markets. There's been a huge sea change in sentiment. Not only consumer confidence, but industrial production. The animal spirits have been unleashed in this economy. And you you got to ask, what levers does a short-term government shutdown touch in the economy? So, you know, a government shutdown does not mean that all the things the government does stop. The military would keep fighting. The Social Security checks would still go out. What it does mean is that non-essential workers don't go to work and don't get paid. Parks would close. Small business loan offices would close. Passport offices would close. But they reopen, and the workers usually get paid retroactively later on uh, when the government is functioning again. So a shutdown for, for that particular reason, according to Goldman Sachs, could shave off two-tenths of a percent of GDP growth for the quarter for every week it goes on. But that would be reversed later when the checks go out. So markets are kind of – basically markets are just saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so eventually the government will pay – its workers. It will continue to pay its bills. Yeah. As we say, the markets aren't the economy. I guess neither is the government, right? That's true. But also this this shutdown isn't connected to some of the more serious functions of government. So it's not connected, for example, to the debt ceiling. There's no question right now of whether the government can pay its bills or its debts to investors. So those investors, like in the bond market, they're not worried about being repaid. And there have been shutdowns in the past. The most recent, I remember, was 2013. There were shutdowns in 1995 and 96. Oh, my God, I remember trying to get a passport when that was going on. Um, (laughs) Do the markets always kind of shrug this off? Yeah, I asked someone who's done some analysis of that. Uh, John Vallis is with State Street Global Markets. We've gone back to the 1980s when there have been brief shutdowns. 
and there's really no pattern. And in fact, many times markets rally. So it just really depends. And he was telling me that, you know, it might seem strange that markets have not been swinging wildly, not just over this, but frankly, over all the dramatic headlines we have seen over the past year. But it's not really that surprising, he says. You know, there's a long history of this. I mean, if you go back to the first Gulf War when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990 or the Clinton impeachment, uh, so forth, these uh, things don't seem to affect markets because they're so hard to predict. They're very hard to price because we don't know what the outcomes will be. And that said, you know, there may be, maybe some more volatility in markets that comes out of this. You know, people might just stop and say, well, I've been meaning to take some profits, might as well sell a few things now. So you might see some small moves. But again, I'm not hearing from anyone that anyone thinks anything major is going to happen. All right. Sabri Benisher, Marketplace Correspondent in New York. Thank you. You're very welcome. The markets are closed right now, but we don't need an excuse to talk numbers. So let's take a look at some space news by the numbers with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Sarah, we'll start with you. Thanks, Amy. Our first number is 28,000. That's the miles per hour speed of a space rock that may have landed near Detroit earlier this week. Many Michiganders caught a glimpse of the meteor's flyby and felt the 2.0 magnitude shake it caused. Now meteorite hunters are expected to scavenge for pieces of rock. Big ones can easily be worth tens of thousands of dollars. 80 million. That's how much it costs a NASA astronaut to hitch a ride on a Russian spacecraft. NASA's been relying on Russia to send humans to space since 2011, when it retired its shuttle. The federal government hired contractors, SpaceX and Boeing, to work on taxis to take U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station while NASA worked on the ambitious deep space projects. But the contractors are behind on their deadline, which means the U.S. could be shelling out for some very expensive Russian tickets again next year. 25. That's how many dollars you'll pay for a 10-ounce jar of simulated Martian soil. It's what astrobiologists use in gardening tests to see if astronauts can grow nutritious, flavorful foods on the red planet. So what grows best on Mars? Turns out so far it's salad greens and hops. Does that mean we're going to get Martian beer? Yeah, maybe like a delicious red ale. Yum. In the midst of the debate over the federal budget lies DACA. The Obama administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program gave temporary relief to undocumented immigrants brought to this country as kids. Back in September, we spoke with Antoine Munoz. This was just after President Trump announced plans to scrap DACA. Munoz's family is from Colombia, but he was born in Venezuela, and his mom brought him to the U.S. when he was one. He's 25 now. Lizzie O'Leary talked with him around the corner from his day job at a coffee shop in Brooklyn. At the time, he was in the middle of trying to open his own place, a speakeasy and cafe. According to the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning think tank, about 5% of all DACA recipients have started their own businesses. You have a work permit. Mm-hmm. You're trying to open a business. Yeah. What do you do now? I can't spend every little moment worrying about my status as it is now or how long I will have it. 
because if I spend too much time worrying, I won't get anything done. I, I realize I have at most two years to get everything running. Um, I guess I'll worry about that when I have to. How do you make any business decisions that way? I don't know. I just, I go with it right now. It's my business. It will always be mine. If I have to sell it, I can. If the worst comes to worst and I can't live here anymore, at least I will have some, some, some money aside for wherever I have to go. When did you come to the U.S.? I was one. I came in through a visa with my mom. She said she had a good life in Venezuela, but a lot of events were occurring, such as the rise of Chavez. And she decided to sell everything she had there, get a visa, get everything ready, come here. Do you remember how old you were when you found out that you weren't a U.S. Yeah. citizen? So I was uh, 17, and I was getting ready for university. I asked my mom, do you think you can pass me my social security card and anything else I need to apply for financial aid? And then she basically said, well, you don't have that. Were you working before you had status? Um, my first job, my first real job was at a restaurant about a block away from my house. And the management there was really nice. Um, they knew about my, they knew about my status. That's, they paid me under the table. You know, he said, listen, I know you can't get a proper job and I can't pay you more than this, but I, I want to teach you a few things. And he would teach me about business and, you know, how to run it and what numbers you need and, you know, that sort of stuff. When did you first hear about the possibility to get DACA status and how'd you do it? I was thinking, well, if I apply for this, you know, I'm on the radar. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, Obama's president, I should be fine. I thought maybe in two years laws will change. And maybe everything will be okay. What was it like getting DACA status? I've been here for so long, and I grew up here. I didn't know I wasn't a citizen. And I saw all my friends going to school, getting their applications, their loans. Everything was falling in order for them, and I was kind of just left behind. And as soon as I got that, I was like, hey, I can start catching up. Tell me how your current job helped you, actually, with this. Um... When I came in, there wasn't many questions, but as I had to renew my uh, fee, I had a lot of bills to pay. My mom was in slight debt. I had to pay for her, and I, I didn't have enough money to pay my fee. Uh, and if you don't pay your fee and you let it expire, there's a chance that you can't get it back. And I asked my manager, hey, I need a few more hours or a few more days somewhere, even if it's overtime. I know it's hard to do, but I need it. And he really pried into it. It's like, why do you need it? And I told him, I, I need it because I need to pay legal fees. And he really pried more into it. And I eventually had to tell him everything. And then that ended up, um, he told HR. HR reached uh, someone to our headquarters in the West Coast. And then someone in the West Coast reached out to our CEO. And then the CEO was in town about a week later, or two weeks later. And he you know, personally spoke to me. I've been there for a while. I've, I've been there since the company started, like, really blowing up, and they just gave me the money. Wow. Yeah. He reached out to the whole company, 
and I just want to show you this. Yeah. He le- it's a huge email about just defending DACA and how our, uh, the company we work for, uh, Blue Bottle, uh, how... Are Can we- you read this for us? Yeah. He said, uh, Loving Blue Bottlers, I am devastated by the news yesterday that the current administration has decided to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program, DACA. We are in this together, and we are never going to back away from our core values. Everyone is welcome here. We welcome everyone. With loving support, Brian. How did it feel to get that email? Ah, it still gets me. He's such, I know him personally, and he's such a great guy. And, uh, you know, I wrote back to him. I'm like, thank you, Brian. You're literally the best. If we, if we could vote you in office, I would. <laughs> and he wrote back to me, you are the best. And I was it. What made you want to open your own business? Um, so I've been with this company for a long time. Uh, four years since I have had DACA. And I've seen them open different shops. I've seen them progress. But ever since I was young, I always wanted my own business or my own... I wanted to have a comfortable life. I wanted to devote my time to other things I liked. For example, when I was in high school and when I thought I had a world of possibility ahead of me, I was actually shooting for a physics major. I wanted to get into that. I wanted... My heroes were uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Michio Kaku, uh, you know, just all these physicists that just, like, made huge discoveries and... And that was my thing. I really wanted to be in science. And, you know, as I realized I couldn't go to school immediately or couldn't pay for my school debts or any of that, I said, you know, the best thing I could do is make enough money to afford my own school. And if it's too late for that, then I could, down the line, if I have enough money, I can be the person that they come to for grants or to help support science. That was Antoine Munoz speaking with Lizzie O'Leary in Brooklyn back in September. From immigration to education, sometimes the best way to learn something is just by doing it. Think riding a bike or throwing a ball. You've got to try it out. Can that approach work for college? In every state, students can now get a taste of college while still in high school and earn some credits along the way by taking so-called dual enrollment classes. Marketplace's Peter Ballin and Rosen looks at how these classes work and why they're so popular. When I was in high school, taking a college class was for smart kids who needed a challenge. Nowadays, that's changed. They're for anyone and everyone. And there are even whole schools devoted to this. And let us pick up then on page 200. So the next thing we were looking at in the chapter on constructing knowledge. Students sit quietly in a large cream-colored classroom at Energy Tech High School in Queens, New York. They're in 10th grade. But this is a three-hour critical thinking college class. What we're looking at there is really the first stage of knowledge. It's one of 19 public high schools in New York City where students can earn credits from a nearby college. Here, students can stick with the program for two years after 12th grade to finish the degree. In 10th grade, they have the opportunity to take one college course. In 11th grade, it can be two to four college courses. In 12th grade, it could be two or more college courses. Hope Barter is Energy Tech's principal. The college classes start young. 
We're not talking AP classes here. We're talking class with a college professor. It helps me to think more outside of the box than in the box. You have to use like experience or common knowledge to solve these problems. 10th grader Ray Adyasin digs the challenge. He keeps telling himself, Do your work. It's going to pay off someday. Dual enrollment classes do have a payoff. Students are more likely to graduate high school, go on to college, and earn more credits than others, according to a recent study from Columbia University. And that's something districts are willing to bet big on. In New York City, classes are free for students. Phil Weinberg is New York City Department of Education's Deputy Chancellor for Teaching and Learning. There are ways in which we're making a financial investment in these young folks. For some of our young people, money is a reason why they can't continue their education. Because college costs, and these classes do too. The Department of Education and area colleges split the bill between $500 and $700 per student per year for tuition, textbooks, instructors. And with 8,000 New York City students taking these classes, I had a question. If taxpayers are paying for students to get a high school education, why should they also be paying for students to get part of a college education? I think that as we strengthen the bridge between high school and college, no matter whether it's in New York City or anywhere else in this country, they will go and they will do well. Dual enrollment's popularity has exploded in the past decade. Depending what state you're in, families, districts, or state government covers the bill. And you can find these classes in every state. Ten require schools to offer them. In Indiana, Iowa, New Mexico, about half of all high school grads have completed at least one college course. They're just now really taking stock of this phenomenon, which has sort of grown faster than people could take account of. Davis Jenkins is senior research scholar at Columbia University. Now, no one actually tracks dual enrollment data nationally, but we can look at one thing. The number of students under 18 taking college courses went from about 300,000 in 1995 to over a million in 2015. It's almost four times as many students. And while these classes are available... It's not a silver bullet. We're just sort of approaching it ad hoc and at random. Jenkins studies dual enrollment classes. Whether students actually earn a college degree varies by state. And many states have big achievement gaps between lower and higher income students. This is extra college, that's good, but is it college that helps you progress to complete your college degree? And that's a critical question. Clive Belfield teaches economics at the City University of New York. The economic benefit of completing college has been well documented. But if the course doesn't help you complete college, that's a concern for economists. Still, Belfield's optimistic. The results are good overall. This will translate into an improved labor force, but it will take many years. And someone else likely benefits too. 70% of students under 18 who get college credit these days do it through community college. This has become much more of the revenue of community colleges. Nationally, community college funding tanked during the recession, right when enrollment went up. Today, funding hasn't fully recovered. With dual enrollment, you know that there's a crop of 11th graders and 12th graders every year. And what pays off for students pays off for these colleges, too. For Marketplace, I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen. 
Are you a parent with a child in a dual enrollment program, or did you participate yourself? We'd like to hear more about your experience and whether it worked for you. Email the show. We're at weekend at marketplace.org. Next week, government and business leaders from around the world will meet in Davos, Switzerland for the 2018 World Economic Forum. This year's theme is creating a shared future in a fractured world. So what exactly goes on at these elite gatherings? We brought in a Davos vet to tell us the five things we should know about the World Economic Forum. My name is John Van Rienen, and I am a professor of economics at Massachusetts Institute for Technology. To start things off, what it's like to be there. So the first thing people should know is that people at the World Economic Forum in Davos are very earnest. One of the things that's really struck me when I was there is that you have a lot of people gathered on the top of a Swiss mountain, um, quite desperate to kind of want to do good things or be seen to do good things. Although, you know, often the images is of all these kind of corporate leaders and titans plotting to rule the world. I think what really struck me is that, you know, people uh, actually want to somehow use the power of business to actually do things which, you know, are beneficial to the world, like tackle poverty, inequality, foster democracy. And they're very earnest about it, or at least appear to be very earnest about it. But with that earnestness comes a bit of something else this year more than ever. Well, the second thing is that there is a lot of anxiety People are very conscious that the image of Davos is of very kind of overprivileged elite people sitting around, drinking, sipping champagne, chatting and skiing, looking down on the world. And I think the anxiety is particularly strong at the moment because of you know the political climate where around the world there is a, a great deal of populism and kind of anti-globalism. And of course, Davos is the epitome of people who are, you know, globalizers trying to come up with global solutions to the kind of problems that that people face. So I I say there's a lot of nervousness and anxiety in general, and, and particularly at the current moment. And if you think it's just politicians and business people in Davos, you'll be surprised by this third thing. The people there are a very eclectic bunch of people. So when I went there first, I, I thought that it would all be kind of business people and some you know, top politicians. And of course, they are there, and that's the kind of bedrock, if you like, of um, Davos. But there's a lot of people from non-governmental organizations and charities. There's a lot of academics like myself, you know, economists, sociologists, historians, all kinds of people. Huge amounts of media people, writers. I remember I once met someone who was the head of a meditation center there. Which brings us to the fourth item to know, that this meeting of the minds can be really enjoyable. It's actually fun. You're in a beautiful place. People, there's people doing skiing. It's a great place for star spotting, walking down the corridor and there's Bill Gates coming from one direction, Angelina Jolly from another direction. And I think a lot of people would be very happy if they could just get their phones out and do selfies all the time. So, you know, although people are earnest and anxious, there's also a lot of fun and enjoyment going on there. But if you're hoping that videos and recaps of the panels going on at the forum will enlighten you, Professor Van Rienen says you might be out of luck. The interesting stuff all happens in between the kind of formal meetings, the, you know, the random chats which go on 
outside in the corridors and walking around and maybe in the evening. So I, I'd say that the kind of the formal set pieces are, are less interesting than the more informal stuff which goes on. The main education thing often can be a little bit superficial. I think the really important stuff actually goes on, you know, behind the scenes. So what's on the agenda for this year? What I think people are going to be talking a lot about is the kind of huge kind of populist backlash going on at the moment, the growth of, uh, you know, extreme parties on the right as well as the left. So I think the big question will be what could be done to try and get economic growth and wages and incomes of people up uh, in a way that can fight back against the kind of populist view that the solutions to these things are to break down globalization, to put up barriers, trade barriers, barriers to people moving around, barriers to immigration. So I think that there will be a, 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 a desperate <laughs> seeking of ways to get growth which can be more evenly spread to come up with ways of fighting back against the kind of wave of populism that we're seeing all over the world at the moment. I think that's going to be centerpiece of, of what people are talking about. We'll have more from the World Economic Forum in Davos next week from Marketplace's own Stephen Beard. And that was John Van Rienen, professor of economics at MIT. There's a saying that a week is a long time in politics, and hasn't this been a long political week? DACA, budget negotiations. Well, how about a year? We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. The United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. The United States has trade deficits with many, many countries, and we cannot allow that to continue. And we'll start with South I said that the bill would be on my desk before Christmas, and you are holding me literally to that, so we did a rush job today. It's not fancy, but it's the Oval Office. It's been 12 months since President Trump moved into the White House. Back then, the Marketplace weekend team traveled to three cities with very different economies. Dalton, Georgia, known for its carpet industry. Gillette, Wyoming's focus is coal and energy. And Corvallis, Oregon, is a hub for education and tech innovation. We've been checking in with the mayors of those cities for a couple of years now. Lizzie O'Leary spoke with them again this week to get a feel for how things have changed or stayed the same since January. In very blue Corvallis, the economy was strong then, and it's strong now. But Mayor Biff Traber says not because of the federal government. But we've also been, when I talk about positive trend, it's been the developing new businesses uh, coming off the university uh, and some, uh, some off of Samaritan. And all of that replacing our prior biggest employer, who had been Hewlett-Packard, who also is doing uh, some modest expansion on their 3D printing lines that are in our plant here. Mayor Traber also shared what he sees as a challenge with a growing industry in Corvallis, marijuana. 
there is more being grown than is sold in the recreational market, so there are legal concerns about black market. Part of that uh, I will trace to the inability to do any interstate uh, agricultural product uh, sales (laughs) in marijuana. So we could be a a growing center, but until things get straightened out on the federal level, we will not have um, any kind of interstate market. In Dalton, Georgia, and Gillette, Wyoming, more people had hopes riding on the president. Deregulation, both mayors say, would be good for the industries there, carpet and energy, respectively. Gillette Mayor Louise Carter King put it this way. When Trump did get in, I think the mood changed so much, and industries also were able to look more into the future, where before it looked like the future was pretty bleak with regulations, even though it was the marketplace that was driving the price and the market at that time, you still have to be able to look a few years down the line to see if it's even, if you should even stay in the industry at all. So I think that's the difference Trump made is, yes, he did start rolling back regulations. What the government does in D.C. affects future investments. You know, why would a company look at investing in something, an industry such as coal, if the, uh, the administration is looking at, you know, shutting it down? For Dalton, Georgia Mayor Dennis Mock, the federal government can only have so much influence. There is potential that you do overblow the importance of uh, federal government and in smaller city life. Really, the state level does affect us more. And it does in a big way, but on a day-to-day basis, not so much. And that's something that Mayor Carter King in Wyoming has had to wrestle with, too. The market drives the coal and oil industries, and regulations only mean so much. Right now, production has gone back up, probably because natural gas has, has gone up and everything else has, too, and it's kind of balanced out. But it's still nowhere near the heyday of coal, so we'll probably have to get used to a a new norm. I mean, the city is just now, uh, our sales tax is coming back, and we don't know where the new norm will be, but we will have to get used to it. But the feeling of hope in those cities is not lost. Unemployment is down, and the mayors say businesses are doing better. One issue Mayor Mock has his eye on is immigration. Dalton, Georgia's nearly 50 percent Latino population has been wary of the new administration. You know, I've said all along, if we ever get immigration settled, our economy here will be booming because 50% of our population is just sitting on hold waiting to uh, get clarity as to their uh, status. And they've, they've got money in their pocket to invest when that happens. Mock says he's happy with most Trump policies, especially as they affect trade. But the Dalton mayor does hope that compromise on DACA, deferred action for childhood arrivals, can ease tensions in his city. I personally know a a bunch of those kids, and um, this happened as no fault of their own. And they're big contributors to our city and our society here. There you have it, the view from three mayors in three very different cities. Thanks to Mayors Traber, Carter King, and Mock. Later in the show, Chrissy Clark from Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk joins us with more on federal regulation under President Trump. We're interested in how your life has changed in the first year of the Trump administration. Send your stories to weekend at marketplace.org.
staying with President Trump, one way he's wielded executive power this year was attempting to rein in federal regulations. Chrissy Clark from Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty team has spent almost a year exploring regulations for the podcast she hosts called The Uncertain Hour. Right after he took office, President Trump signed a couple of executive orders aimed at reducing regulations. And one of the things that he's said a lot recently is that he has cut more regulations than any president in history. Here he is speaking at the American Farm Bureau annual convention in Nashville, Tennessee, earlier this month. Within our first 11 months, my administration has canceled or delayed over 1,500 planned regulatory actions or assaults, more than any president in the history of the United States. Assaults. That word tells us a lot. Uh, 1,500 sounds like a, a pretty big number. Can you break that down for us? I will try. It's actually pretty complicated math. Uh, Bloomberg did a great article on this. And and let me break it down a little bit. So only a handful of regulations have actually been taken off the books under the Trump administration. A lot of the things that are included in that 1500 number involve stopping proposed rules that hadn't actually made their way onto the books yet. The White House says it has killed or stalled 860 pending regulations. It's withdrawn 469, and it's listing another 109 as inactive and relegated 282 of them to long term. So it's not as simple as just killing regulations. The Bloomberg News Review found hundreds of the regulations that the White House is talking about in this deregulatory tally were pending regulations that had actually been effectively shelved before Trump took office. It's part of why... There's not as many that have just been straight up killed is that it actually takes a lot to undo a regulation. You have to go through a long process. There's a notice and comment period and discussions, and you need to justify that you have the technical grounds for repealing a rule. So it can't just be that you don't like a rule and it's not as easy as just taking out an eraser. So what does it take? Can you walk us through an example of something he has managed to undo? So a good example of how this has worked for the Trump administration is their effort to repeal the Obama-era net neutrality rule. So this is the rule we've heard a lot about that would have prohibited broadband providers from favoring some websites over others. And way back in April, President Trump's Federal Communications Commission announced their intent to overhaul net neutrality, and they released a draft for public comment. Uh, The way that Congress designed the system, people can submit comments on any proposed regulation. An agency like the Federal Communications Commission makes the draft of a proposed rule available for the public to examine. Citizens have a set time period, usually between 30 and 60 days, to submit comments. And actually, you right now could go to regulations.gov and comment on something yourself. So, I might just do that. So, so, the, so the FCC received a flood of comments on its draft proposal to repeal these net neutrality rules. In total, more than 21 million comments were submitted electronically wow. and posted online for review. That's a huge amount. And federal agencies like the FCC are supposed to consider all these comments as they develop a regulation – But it's important to note that comments are not votes. It's a way to help agencies make informed decisions, but it's not like majority rules. So, Chrissy, you've spent much of the past year digging into federal regulations and what they mean in our daily lives. But how much do you think the average person really understands 
uh, or even cares about this deregulatory agenda of the president's? Is this a kitchen table issue? Well, regulations, for a long time, they've kind of been the stealth issue, right? It's something that maybe we we hear about them, but we don't really know how they work or what they do. They're very technical and wonky. Um, but now it is becoming more in the public eye. An example of just how important this issue is to the president is the big speech he gave last month at the White House. He talked about regulations and brought some stage props with him. He stood between these two stacks of paper. You can see another really vivid illustration of the monumental task we face. In 1960, there were approximately 20,000 pages in the Code of Federal Regulations. Today, there are over 185,000 pages. So you take a look at that, and I assume that this is today. This is 1960. We're going to cut a ribbon because we're getting back below the 1960 level, and we'll be there fairly quickly. And just for the visual, so the stack of Code of Federal Regulations from the 1960s came up to about his knees. Um, and then the other the other stack from today is like taller than Trump is. And after his speech, <laughs> he literally cut a piece of red tape to symbolize how many regulations he was going to get rid of. Um, so one thing that's important to point out is that, yeah, the Trump administration is indeed in a deregulatory mood. But his assertion that they're going to get down to those 1960s levels of regulations, not even his own regulatory czar that he appointed thinks that that would be possible without legislation. Hmm. About a week and a half from now, President Trump will be giving the State of the Union address. Uh, with all of this perspective you have now, what are some things you're going to be listening for? Yeah, so I'm definitely going to be listening to hear how many regulations he says his his administration has canceled or delayed so far. Um, I'm going to be curious to see if he'll name any specific rules that he is focused on next. And I'm also just interested in hearing how he talks about the relationship between businesses and corporations and regulations. He often uses the phrase job-killing regulations or job-killing rules, and he talks about how businesses are leaving our country because we have so many rules. We actually did a whole episode on the relationship between corporations and regulations, and it turns out that it goes back a long way, and it's much more complicated than just businesses hating regulations and wanting them to go away. Um, often businesses are using regulations because it, it, it helps level the playing field for the industry. All right. Chrissy Clark is our senior wealth and poverty correspondent, and she hosts the podcast The Uncertain Hour. Check it out. Chrissy, thank you so much. Thank you. Aside from what's been happening on Capitol Hill this week, another big story this winter has been the especially bad flu season. Grab your hand sanitizer because we're taking on the topic with a look at smart thermometers, like the ones made by Kinza Health. The company's thermometers connect to an app to give users advice and to track the spread of the flu. Donald G. McNeil Jr. is a health and science reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. How do these smart thermometers work? They're a pretty standard thermometer, except that they plug into your smartphone, and then they upload the temperature 
to a website, Kinza Health, which makes the thermometers. Meanwhile, they're selling advertising on, on the smartphone from everything from, you know, antiseptic companies to flu medicine companies to orange juice companies and vitamin companies and anybody else who wants to buy it. But also, they use all those readings, which they say is now 25,000 a day, to create a map of where basically fevers are spiking in the United States. And that, you know, in the middle of flu season allows them to give a pretty good marker for where the flu is hitting in the country. You write that the company claims to be tracking this year's flu season faster and in more detail than even the CDC. Um, but how reliable is it? I mean, is it can you really detect flu based on fever spikes or are they taking other symptoms into account? There's many things they don't do. It doesn't test for flu. All it does is record temperatures. It, it takes a state health department to really do, you know, or the CDC to really do an accurate flu test and flu typing and, and testing to see whether or not the flu is is resistant to uh, antiviral medicines and things like that. But the CDC's flu data has a several-week delay because their network of doctors report to the CDC or, or sometimes via state health departments about where the flu is, what percentage of their patients have flu symptoms and things like that. And it takes a while, you know, it, it usually takes a day or two for somebody to get to see a doctor when they fall ill. The reason this is faster is because it picks up temperature spikes literally as, as, as soon as the patient knows it, the company knows it. So do you see, I don't know if the company has, has talked about its plans, but do you see at some point a user of this app being able to see, ah, there's a, a flu spike or a fever spike around my kid's elementary school, or maybe I won't go out to dinner in that particular neighborhood tonight. Will it be shareable um, to those who use the app? That's pretty granular. I mean, my kid's school or my neighborhood. I mean, right now, <laughs> they are producing data county by county. I think the company thinks they hope to be able to eventually produce that kind of data, but you have to have, you know, millions of Americans taking their temperature, you know, with their, with their thermometers at that point to be able to get it down to the school level or something like that. But right now, they, they claim to have it down to, like, you know, considerably lower than the state level and down to the county level. And, and that's, you know, and fast, too. And you mentioned the advertisers um, on the site. Uh, what's in it for them? I assume uh, they're reaching people who may be interested in their products at that particular moment. Exactly. Bingo. <laughs> All right. Donald G. McNeil Jr. is a science and health reporter at The New York Times. He wrote about smart thermometers. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. If you need some tips on how to keep yourself well during cold and flu season and how much it might cost you to get better go to our website, marketplace.org. Coming up next week on Marketplace Weekend, we talk health care in rural communities and how everything from internet access to a lack of nursing staff can add to health challenges. Have a story? We want to hear it. You can email us at weekend at marketplace.org or leave a voicemail message, 1-800-648-5114. And that's it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Ballin and Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Amy Scott. Thanks for listening. This is APM.